Father, as uh, Jim's already said, we are grateful to be back. We are grateful for your consistency and your provision and your care for us. Uh, some of us have been in this study. We have some guys have been here from day one, and we're, we're coming up on double digits now, and that's just really remarkable. And that goes back to when this church was just getting going, and we look back over how you providentially put this on Chuck's heart and some other people's heart, and they met over at the country club. And we look back over those years, and, and, and we just see your hand. And, 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 and when we were there, we were looking ahead, and it was, it was just, gosh, is this crazy or what? And I'm sure Chuck had to be thinking that because guys that are in their mid-60s are usually looking to cut back, and he's starting something new, and that would only come if you were leading him we all sensed you were. And, but it was unknown. We didn't know what was out there. And now here we are 10, 11 years down the road, and we look back, and we see all that you have done, and we, we've seen all your faithfulness. Even over the summer, as uh, we have not had our normal schedule, we look back over the events of the last 90 days or so, and there's been some good, and there's been some bad, and there's been some uh, fun, and there's been some heartache, uh, undoubtedly. But through it all, you were there. Through it all, you're consistent. Through it all, we have a stability because we know you and because you've never lied to us. We, we have based our lives on, on your gospel and what you have told us. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and we believe that there is no other name given to men under heaven by which they may be saved. And you not only save us from sin, and you not only save us from ourselves, and you, you, you not only save us from our own lives, but you give us a, a new heart, and you put your spirit within us, and you regenerate us, and you put us on a path so that we can become mature men and the men that you want us to be. So here we are, new fall, new semester, so to speak. And for some of us, things have changed. In the last 90 days, pretty significantly, others of us, it's the same old, same old. But that's okay. We're here. We want to hear from you. We're asking for your direction. We've got guys here that are in deep water that, that, that desperately need you to give them clarity, and we would pray that you would do that. Let them know that you're with them. Let them know that they are not by themselves. Let them know that you are completely aware of what's going on in their lives, and you are quick to help. Call on me in the day of trouble, you have said, and I will rescue you, and you will honor me. We do that even before the answer comes, because we know of your faithfulness. Instruct us now, teach us, lead us, we pray. We count on you and your spirit to do that work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to start a new uh, book study tonight, and I'd like you to turn with me. Uh, we're going to work our way through the book of Boaz. So turn with me to the Old Testament, if you would. And if you're new to your Bible, uh, you're going to have trouble because there is no book of Boaz. Um, so how are we going to study the book of Boaz? Well, there is a book called the Book of Ruth. 
I like to call the book of Ruth the book of Boaz. Because in my mind, in my opinion, um, the central figure in the book of Ruth, and good men would differ on this, even bad men would differ on this, but in my opinion, I think the story of Ruth is really the story of Boaz. He doesn't show up until chapter 2. You, you read the first chapter, and you don't even know the sucker's around. And suddenly, he makes an appearance. It's, it's a fascinating book. Uh, perhaps you have studied it before. Perhaps it's new to you. The great commentator, Matthew Henry. I love the old dead guys. Don't you? Uh, I love their stuff. I love to read the old dead guys. Matthew Henry is one of the old dead guys. The first commentary I can ever remember checking out uh, was Matthew Henry's commentary. Because I asked my dad about something, and my dad pulled Matthew Henry's commentary off the shelf, and he said, we'll see what Matthew Henry's got to say. And uh, you can't go wrong checking with Matthew Henry. He, he, he was a guy who was a careful student of the Word. Lived about 300 years ago. Matthew Henry says that the book of Ruth, the book of Boaz, is about two things. Uh, this book leads us to the doctrine of providence, and it leads us to the person of Christ. Those two things are throughout this particular book. So that's where we're going to be. And uh, it, it's, uh, you know, to me, it's always amazing how, how contemporary and how relevant the Bible is. Here is a portion of Scripture, one, one of the, a portrayal of one of the earliest times in Old Testament history, and one of the worst times of Old Testament history. Uh, I read it, I'm encouraged, and I'm mindful of the fact that it is so relevant to where we are right now. You don't have to work to make God's Word relevant. It is relevant. It's always been relevant. Uh, this, this whole Bible is relevant. I was reading uh, this week. I, I, some of you guys have been around for a while. You know I, always, I enjoy Martin Lloyd-Jones. And Lloyd-Jones was just making a comment. I've got a new... Um, I found the new book. He did... Uh, remember the story of the woman at the well and John... I got a new book by Martin Lloyd-Jones. He did 56 sermons on the woman at the well. That's our next series. <laughs> See, what I do is I read these guys, and I come in and preach their stuff. Uh, that's what I do on the weekends. I go out and speak, and I'll hear Chuck, and I steal his stuff, and I go preach his stuff. And it's been a good living for me. I've really appreciated <laughs> Chuck's work in my life. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones was saying, you know, you don't start with Matthew 1, you start with Genesis 1. There's a reason there's an Old Testament. And you read Genesis 1, and it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And everything in our culture tells us that he didn't. So last week, was it? Week before, I'm flying to somewhere. North Carolina. I grab a Wall Street Journal, and there's an article by Stephen Hawking, most brilliant man on the face of the earth, 
who has uh, Isaac Newton's endowed chair at Cambridge. Isaac Newton was a great worshiper of God. He believed when he studied science, he was studying the handiwork of God. But Hawking wrote, the, you've probably heard about it, he wrote this article in the Wall Street Journal about why there is no creator. But there is a creator. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Doesn't matter how many degrees. Doesn't matter what your SAT score was. The fool has said that there is no God. There is a God. The story begins in Genesis 1. And all of these books are important. And as we're going to see, this, this, this book, small book, important book, it's going to teach us about the providence of God and the workings of God and the mysterious ways that God overrules and ordains our lives. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. One of the things we see in this book is this guy, Boaz, who doesn't show up until chapter 2. The reason he doesn't show up in chapter 2 is that there are events happening in chapter 1, 10 years before he comes on the scene that God is orchestrating in a completely different family, in a different area, that directly affects him, and he doesn't have a clue what is happening and is ignorant of all of it. Yet God is going to weave it into his life at a particular key moment and use it to do some marvelous things. Eye has not seen. Ear has not heard. What God has planned for those who love him. God is doing stuff today that we will do, know nothing about until 10, 12, 15 years down the road. What he is doing is he's setting it up. And sometimes we feel that he's not doing anything. We think that he has forgotten us. We think that he has put us on the shelf. He's just setting it up. You know, in volleyball, someone's got to do this. Someone's got to set. And then somebody spikes. It's not spike, spike, spike. Someone's got to set. Someone's got to set. And that's what we're going to see here. I can't remember if I mentioned this to you last spring or not. I don't think I did. Um, you're familiar with uh, Stephen Jobs, and you're familiar with Steve Wozniak, and you're familiar with Ron Wayne, because those three guys are the founders of Apple Computer. Now, Wozniak you know about. Jobs you know about. Ron Wayne? Uh, Ron Wayne is now, how old is he? 76 years old. He doesn't live in Silicon Valley. He lives in Reno, and he spends his days playing um, video poker at a casino in Reno. And the reason he does that is that he's trying to uh, uh, get a little extra income to make his Social Security and everything so he can cover his bills every month. Yet he was one of the original founders of Apple. In fact, as I read this, this was in the Wall Street Journal, when Apple was formed on April 1st, 1976, Ron Wayne signed the legal papers along with Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. Jobs and Wozniak each held 45% of the stock. Ron Wayne had the other 10. Eleven days later, he sold his shares for $800. Now, 
On an impulse, he decided to get out of that infant corporation because he just was a little unsure about its future. This was about personal computers, and he wasn't sure it was going to take off or not. So that $800 and 800 bucks in 76 was a nice little chunk of change. Sold 10% of this, uh, all the stock, 10% of Apple. That 10% of Apple today would be worth $22 billion. And he wouldn't be playing video poker in Reno, trying to get grocery money. You got to know when to hold them, and you got to know when to fold them. I think that's in Proverbs, isn't it, somewhere? <laughs> it's not, but it ought to be. You got to know when to hold them, you got to know when to fold them. Uh, we find in the opening verses of uh, this book of Ruth, this book of Boaz, we're not going to read about Boaz, we're going to read about another guy. So let's jump in. Oh, by the way, this guy we're going to read about, he, uh, he had the same issue. Uh, you got to know when to hold them, and you got to know when to fold them. And watch what he did. Now, it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. Now, I'll be honest with you. You just read that. I mean, let's just be honest. And it seems a little boring. You got Moab. What the heck is Moab? You got some guy sojourning. You got some guy from Bethlehem, and it doesn't even give the sucker's name. Well, let's keep reading. Let's see what we can find out. The name of the man was Elimelech. And the name of his wife, Naomi, you may have heard of her. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. By the way, Malon means sickly. Must have been a sick little kid. Uh, names meant something back then. They just didn't throw names out. They just didn't get out name books. Names had meaning. Malon meant sickly. Chilion meant failing. Interesting choice. The names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites, that was their clan, of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Let's just stop right there. Let's break this down a little bit. This guy, Elimelech. Elimelech, unusual name. Uh, the name Elimelech means this. It means God is my king. Now let me tell you something about Elimelech. Oh, Elimelech. He had a great name, but he didn't live it out. His parents, for him, we want God to be his king. Well, God wasn't his king, even though he was a Jew. He lived in interesting times. Let's go back to verse 1. It came about in the days when the judges governed. That sets the stage for us. If you flip one page to the left, you will find the book of Judges. Uh, what's the book of Judges about? Uh, the book of Judges covers the period of time um, when Joshua died and passed off the scene. The period of the Judges began. It lasted approximately two to three hundred years, and Judges goes from the death of Joshua uh, to the events of 
First Samuel and uh, uh, the nation finally getting uh, their king. And so the book of Judges is that period of time in between, the two to three hundred years. Um, how do you characterize this period of time? Well, here's where this is so relevant and so applicable to us. There is a phrase that runs through the book of Judges because, you see, the book of Judges records a, a period of time in the history of Israel that they, all you can call it is Israel's downward spiral. You say, what, what's the judge think? The judges were 12 leaders that God raised up over this two to three hundred year period of time because what happened was, you remember at the end of Joshua, he said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He put it on every family, he put it on every head of household. Hey, you got to choose this day who you're going to serve. You're going to serve the idols or you're going to serve the Lord. Well, he died and the vast majority of the nation, they went after the idols. And so the nation went into a downward spiral and they went into slavery because whenever you follow idols instead of living God, you're going to wind up personally enslaved. And they were enslaved by their enemies. And what would happen, there was a downward spiral and then God would send a judge, a leader to deliver them. And then they would be at peace for a season and then what would happen is they would once again forget the Lord and then they would downward spiral again and they would be enslaved and have all this trouble. And after years and years and years and years, they would call out to God. He would send another deliverer. This happened 12 times. And each time they had a downward spiral and God would deliver them and, and he would be gracious to them and they would then forget. Each time they went a little deeper. Each time it got a little worse. That's the period of the judges. Uh, there is a motto, there is a phrase that describes the period of the judges. Uh, you can find it in Judges 21-25, and it's simply this. It simply says this. Here's how you characterize this period of time in Israel's history. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's how it worked. They ignored the truth of God. They ignored the scriptures. They ignored the facts. They ignored the law. Every man became his own law. There was, no, uh, there was no truth. There was no absolute truth. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. That may be wrong for you. Now, that doesn't mean it's wrong for me. Well, actually it does. If it's clear in Scripture. Every man did what was right. It was a period of lawlessness. It was a period of narcissism where people were into self, self-realization, self-understanding, self-satisfaction, self-fulfillment. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? I think in our culture, self is the single most popular idol. We bow, we worship at the altar of self. See it all the time. Well, I'm just trying to find myself. Jesus said, if you want to find your life, you must lose your life. That's what Jesus said. So this period of the judges, to me, is pretty much, we're rubber stamping it. You look at where we are as a culture. Over the summer, I read of a ruling in regard to marriage. And then it came out. Now, this is interesting. A couple things. Uh, 
came out that the judge, who was going to write the decision that would offset the vote of millions of people, one guy, uh, a couple things. Number one, it turns out on this whole issue of homosexual marriage, it turns out he's homosexual. Well, you know, there used to be a principle that if you had a personal interest in a case, you would recruit, uh, recuse yourself. But he didn't do that. And when I read that, I thought, well, that makes sense. What, well, you say, why does that make sense? Well, because every man does what's right in his own eyes. There's no honor. There's no law. There's no integrity. Every man does what's right in his own eyes. Now, what if that guy had been an evangelical, Bible-believing Christian? Lord, help us. But see, it never came up, did it? It was interesting, that particular, um, in that, in that uh, thing that he wrote, uh, a statement was made that marriage has nothing to do with gender. That only flies against the Bible. That flies against, I mean, my gosh. The pagan cultures know that. Every culture in the history of the world knows that marriage is all about gender. But you see, when every man does what's right in his own eyes, it doesn't matter what truth is. It doesn't matter what law is. It doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Every man does what is right in his own eyes. And once you remove truth, once you remove a benchmark, there's, and you think, my gosh, how bad can it get? Pretty bad. And we're not quite all the way yet. And once again, I'm just here to encourage you tonight. <laughs> but we shouldn't be surprised where we are if you read Romans 1. You really want to know where we are, you read Romans 1.18, just the end of that section. And it talks about what happens when people don't acknowledge Genesis 1, in the beginning God, because they say there is no God, but there is a God. Romans 1 says, what have they done about God? Flip over there with me. The reason I'm going through all this is that this is what they were facing in this book, in the Old Testament. Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And watch this who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. Every man knows in his heart that God exists. For God made it evident to them. But, but what have they done? See, it's evident. They know he's there. But what have they done? They have suppressed the truth. The idea is to put something in a box and sit on it. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, watch this, have been clearly seen. Clearly. This isn't obtuse, it's clear. Watch this, being understood through what has been made so that they were without excuse. 
I remember when my son John was going through his tough time, and he wasn't even sure at points there was a God, and he was just struggling. He was trying, you know. I mean, he'd been raised. We raised him the best we could, you know. But he just wasn't sure he was buying into that, you know. And he had, you know, people in the church and all that stuff, you know. I mean, it helped he had a perfect father. <laughs> but the people in the church were, were a problem. Hey, he's just going through stuff. Kids go through stuff. You've got to let them go through their stuff. It's either true or it isn't true. you just got to let them work it through. And uh, anyway, he got interested in physiology and anatomy. And, and I remember the day he came home, he was taking a summer, he was going to Biola in California, but he was taking a class at UNT, and he came home, and he threw some pig lungs on the countertop. And fortunately, Mary was out somewhere. But he said, Dad, i got to show you this. I said, okay, and he just threw it down there. I started to fire up the grill. I mean, I wasn't sure what it was. <laughs> he said, Dad, let me show you something. And he starts showing me these pig lungs. And he starts showing me these valves. And he starts showing me. And I mean, he was absolutely mesmerized. He said, this is a pig. He said, look at, he said, and, he, and then he looked at me and he said, he said, look at the engineering of this thing. Look how that works. And then when that does this and all that. And I, I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. He looked at me, he said, you know what? There's a God, Dad. He said, there's a God. How else do you explain this? I said, I, I'm, I'm with you, man. I'm with you. He said, but the guy up there teaching, I mean, he says there is no God. How, how do you look at this and say there is no God? It's clearly seen just looking at pig lungs. <laughs> but they suppress the truth. In unrighteousness. They don't want to see if you acknowledge he is God, then he has authority over you and you would have to bow. And that's the issue. Uh, verse 20, it ends by saying, So they are without excuse, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. They became futile in their speculations. And their foolish heart was darkened. Watch this. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the corruptible of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Those are the idols. You've seen them. Of animals, and they worship them. Therefore, here's what happens. Therefore, watch this. Watch the term gave them over. If you're going to suppress truth about God, he will give you over. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. You ever watch these, you know, earth or nature? And they just marvel at the migration pattern, and the penguins, and they marvel at it all. The glory of the earth. They just marvel at it. You know what they're doing? They're worshiping those animals is what they're doing. Let's worship the one who made the animals. Let's worship the one who put this whole thing in the motion, who spoke it into existence. Let's worship him.
Nah, can't do that. Go down to 26. For this reason, here it is again, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. That's lesbianism. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another, homosexuality, men and with men committing indecent acts, receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. That's an interesting phrase. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. Now watch this. God gave them over to what now? To a depraved mind. Depraved mind is an unreasoning mind. Because you see, you have, re, you, have re, you have refused the fact that God is there. See, when you continue to deny reason, you're given over to a mind that is not reasonable. And this is why we look at our culture and we say, this is insane. And that is exactly what it is. It's insane. It is a non-thinking, although they want you to think that they, that they are the thinkers. They are the suppressors, not thinkers. They are the great suppressors. The universities are the great seats of suppression. That's our day, and that was their day. I thought we'd start light tonight. Uh, I haven't forgotten this guy, Elimelech. But on your way to Elimelech, in the book of Ruth, stop off at Ecclesiastes. Chapter 7. If you're in Psalms, go to your right. If you're in Obadiah, go left. And you'll find it. Right after... Proverbs, you'll, you're getting warm. Ecclesiastes uh, 7.13 says this. It says, consider the work of God. Now, let me ask you something. When you consider, what does that mean, to consider something? You think about it, you reason. So this is the antithesis of what we've just seen in Romans 1. Instead of rejecting reason, instead of rejecting truth, instead of suppressing truth, you consider it, you ponder it, you mull it over, you chew it around in your mind. Watch this. Consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy. I say amen to that. We all love prosperity, don't we? We all love the good years. We all love the years where everything... We all love the years when you can't, when, when you can't find a parking space at Home Depot. Because everybody's in there buying windows, and everybody's in there buying screen doors, and everybody's adding on, and everything, you know. And that means, hey, economy's pumping. I went into Lowe's the other day, and I just drove in the building. <laughs> the guy just brought me right on in, plumbing. I mean, they got parking spaces now inside. Because not a lot of... There's just not a lot of folks. Well, why? Well, it's we've had some prosperity, but uh, there's this other stuff. In the day of prosperity, be happy.
But in the day of adversity, here it is again, consider. In the day of adversity, think. In the day of adversity, mull over what's going on. Watch this, the next line. God has made the one as well as the other. If it's bent, ultimately, who's behind the bending? He is. So, a lot of you guys have looked at biblical prophecy, and we we look at Daniel, we look at Revelation, we know what's coming, we know eventually, you know, uh, there'll be a one-world government. You know what one-world government means? It means democracy will be exterminated on the face of the earth. That's what it means. Once again, I'm just here to encourage you. You go, oh my gosh. When that day comes, you go, oh, that's terrible. Who's behind it and who orchestrated it? It's the plan of Almighty God. And that plan will result in the defeat of the Antichrist and the One World Alliance and the government of Satan, and Jesus will defeat it There'll be a new heaven, there'll be a new earth, there'll be a new Jerusalem. He'll rule and reign forever. Forever. And it'll bring glory to his name and the good, and, and the good to his people. That's where we're going. And he's orchestrating the whole thing. Right? See, when... Uh, so when, when stuff is going south, hey, prosperity is prosperity. Everybody's happy. Everybody's pumped. But in the day of adversity, what does it say? Because, see, in the day of adversity, you can get real depressed and you get real down. And you go, oh, my gosh. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Hey, hey, ho, ho. In the day of adversity, consider. Think. He's made the one and he's made this one, too. He's up to something. Now, let's go back to Elimelech because Elimelech has got some adversity. But Elimelech, whose name is God is my king, is going to act like he is king of his life. And he's going to get himself in a whole bunch of trouble. Because he's not living out his name. It's the story of Alexander the Great. One of his conquests, they're marching the army, they're stopped one night. And they bring in this, this young teenage soldier who's been disciplined and disciplined, and finally they brought him in to Alexander the Great, and they told him, you know, that is file and the whole thing. They're talking about this kid and his rebellious spirit and all that he's done and his latest antics, and they brought him in. And it happened, this young boy, his name was Alexander. And they brought him in to Alexander the Great, and Alexander the Great turned and looked at him and said, either change your name or change your behavior. That pretty much sums it up. Uh, this guy's name, Abimelech, God is my king. Well, he didn't act like it, but he doesn't act like it. Uh, note a couple things in, in verse 1. Note, first of all, we've noted it was the time of the judges, okay? Not a real good time. Not a day of prosperity, not a time of revival, not a time of spiritual, uh, where the nation is seeking God. It is a bad time Note also in verse 1 that there was a famine in the land. Now the question is, see, listen, 
What does Ecclesiastes say? Consider the work of God. In the day of prosperity, be happy. In the day of adversity, consider. A famine um, is adversity. So if there is a famine, what should a man of God do? You should consider, you should think, what the heck is going on here? Why? You see, the question asked is, why is there a famine? Well, the explanation would be Deuteronomy chapter 28. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 28, God with his, had made a covenant with the nation of Israel. And in Deuteronomy 28, God uh, basically lays out for them the blessings and the curses. And what God says to them is, if you will follow me, and just flip over to Deuteronomy, since this is a Bible study, we might as well study the Bible. Flip over to Deuteronomy 28. It's the blessings and the curses. Now it shall be, you, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Don't you love that? They'll overtake you. You know what I think about when I think about being overtaken? I think about a cop with his lights and siren on. You ever on the interstate, you're just, I mean, you're, you're good. You're good. You're out in, you know, central Arizona somewhere. Just cruising along about 135. <laughs> life's good, life's sweet. You got the air on, you got satellite radio on, everything's good. And uh, you're, you're just cruising. All of a sudden, you look in your mirror, and you're being overtaken. That's not good. But see, God says, you obey me, you do it my way, I'll, I'm going to tell you what, my I'll overtake you. I'll pursue you with blessings beyond your wildest dreams. Look at verse um, 8. The Lord will command the blessing upon you and your barns and in all that you put your hand to, and he will bless you in the land which the Lord gives you. Look down at 11. The Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the offspring of your body and the offspring of your beast and in the produce of your ground in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers. The Lord will open for you his good storehouse, the heavens, to give rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hand. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. That's an interesting verse, but I'll just keep moving. The Lord will make you the head and not the tail. This is what happens when a nation follows the Lord. But when they don't, you got the curses. So look at verse uh, 15. But it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I charge you with today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. There it is again. So it's up to you, pal. You can have the blessing of God pursue you and overtake you, or you can have the curses. You want to follow him with your whole heart, or you want to go after the idols of the other nations. It's your call, man. It's up to you. You call it. How do you want to live your life? But if you go this way, I'll bless you, I'll pursue you. If you go this way, there are going to be curses, and they'll overtake you, and the curses are twice as long as the blessings. One of the curses is verse 23, the heaven which is over your head shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you iron, the Lord will make the rain of your land powder and dust from heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. That's called famine. And that's what they had in, a, in this guy's hometown, Elimelech. And what was his hometown? Bethlehem. 
Uh, we got famine. Oh, gee, why do we have famine? Uh, Deuteronomy 28. Every man's doing what's right in his own eyes. And God is watching over his word to perform it. And that's what's happening here. That's why there's famine. Uh, bad economic times. God runs economic cycles. Joseph said to Pharaoh, there'll be seven years of prosperity and there'll be seven years of famine. God runs all that stuff. He owns it. He controls it. Amos 3.6, can a calamity come upon a city unless the Lord sends it? Uh, so what does Elimelech do? There's a, uh, there's a famine. Does he consider the work of God? Uh, he doesn't consider the work of God. Does he stop and ponder and say, what does this mean? What is this up to? What, what, what is God trying to say here? He doesn't say any of that. What, what does he do? He realizes there is a famine, and then he simply gets up and leaves. That's what he does. It came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem and Judea went to sojourn. They take a road trip. They get in the suburban. He gets the wife. He gets the kids. And they go to the land of Moab, 50 miles east of uh, Bethlehem with his wife and two sons. Why would they go to Moab? Because of the topography and the way things work with Israel and Jerusalem and uh, Bethlehem and you know and then where this is 50 miles to the east. You got mountains, you got valleys, you got gorges, you've got it's it's very very fertile land and you see in Bethlehem you've got famine but you don't have it in Moab. So what does this guy do? Does he pray? Does he, does he seek the Lord? Why is there famine? Is there anything in my life? Is it, no, he just picks him up. Why? Because he is into personal peace and affluence. All he knows is the pastures are greener in Moab. Now, here's another proof that God was not his king. The last place in the world he should have gone and taken his family was Moab. Uh, that was a bad move. The Moabites were the mortal enemies of the Jews. Where did the Moabites come from? Remember Lot? Remember uh, what happened to Lot's wife? Turned into a pillar of salt? Didn't really happen, it's a metaphor. Thought I'd get your attention. It did happen. Now, what was the context of her... God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, and he was getting them out. Interestingly enough, they didn't want to leave. He gets them out. He says, don't look back. What did she do? She looked back. Okay? Fine. So now it's Lot and his two, two daughters. If uh, you read the account in Genesis 19, his daughters looked around, gosh, Everything's destroyed. We're childless. They got their father drunk. And on one night, the older daughter had sexual intercourse with him, got him drunk the next night, the younger daughter. The older daughter had an offspring named Moab, which literally means of my father. So the Moabites were the result of an incestuous relationship. Um, 
There was no formal prohibition against the Jews marrying Moabites. Uh, however, marriage to Moabites, this is from the SV Study Bible, Moabites, uh, marriage to Moabites was discouraged because of their commitment to other gods, such as Moloch. They, they uh, did uh, sacrifice to Baal Moloch. They would throw the children into the fire and they would be burned alive. Uh, you had the Balaam debacle in uh, number. This is all in Numbers 22 to 25, where the uh, men of Israel were pulled in uh, to go whoring after the Moabite women, and had it was a bad scene. And finish anyway. It's it's in Numbers. Um, when when the children of Israel were passing in to go to the the promised land, they asked to pass through the Moabite land, and they wouldn't let them go. As a result, there was a 10-generation prohibition of any Moabite male coming into the assembly of the Lord. And listen, the Moabites were bad news. And what does this guy do? There's famine. Does he consider? Does he seek God? Picks up the family, puts them in the suburb, and he goes straight into Moab. Why? Because it's prosperous. Here's a guy that knows the truth, he's suppressing the truth, won't look at his own heart, he's walking by sight instead of faith. Kind of contemporary, isn't it? My time is going quickly here. Uh, let's uh, uh, time out on uh, Elimelech. There's no mention of Boaz here. But Boaz is in chapter 2, verse 1. Let's, uh, let, let's, just, let's look at Boaz real quick. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1 is 10 years later. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Okay. You say, how do you know it was 10 years later? Because, go back to verse 1. Do you see the, the word that he, this man went to sojourn? You know what sojourn means? It means to reside temporarily. So he took his family, and what was the idea? Things are tough here, they won't be tough long. We'll just go over there, and we'll just, uh, shoot, we'll just hang out over there. We'll just reside temporarily in Moab. Just kind of, you know. Stretch out vacation a little bit. Get out from under the pressure. Get out from under the economic. We'll go to Moab. Doesn't matter. It's hell on earth. We'll go to Moab. So he was going to sojourn. Then you go to verse 2 and look at the end of verse 2. It says, Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. And then you get down to the end of verse 4 and it says, And they lived there about 10 years. When it says they lived there, the idea is they settled there. This guy thought this was going to be a short-term deal, and he winds up being there for 10 years. 10 years later, you get to Ruth 2, Moab 2, uh, not Moab, what am I doing? Boaz 2. I better stick with Ruth. I'm going to get in trouble. And here's this guy, Boaz. So this is 10 years later. By the way, where was Boaz 10 years before? He was in Jerusalem. Not in Jerusalem. Man, what is wrong with me? He was in... Um, Somebody help me. Bethlehem. He lived in the same neighborhood this guy lived in. He was experiencing the same famine as Elimelech. Did he bolt? Did he run? Did he leave? No, he stayed. 
Did he take his family and go? He didn't have a family. He was a single guy, and he's getting older and older and older. At the age when most men are married, this guy's not married. Not only is he in famine with everybody else, he doesn't have a family. He looks around, sees what other guys have. They're having, you know, married and have kids and all that. He doesn't have any of it. You got to wonder, maybe he's thinking, what's wrong with me? Sometimes we look at others who have things and they've been blessed, but God hasn't blessed us, and we think, what's wrong with me? Well, maybe nothing's wrong with you. You're just on a different time schedule than the guy over here, over here, over here. So my daughter Rachel is getting married on Saturday at our house. And I'm doing the ceremony so I can get through it. It'll be neat. So we got a lot of wedding stuff going on right now. And it's pretty neat. And, uh, and uh, a guy who I prayed for since she was born, and my prayers have been surpassed. Great guy, loves the Lord, solid. This is good stuff. Rachel's 31. I remember she thought she'd be married. If she knew I was saying this, she'd kill me. But she doesn't get the CDs. <laughs> so it looked like she might be married at 22, but that didn't work out. And then, and some of her friends were married, you know, but she wasn't. And then about 26, 27, it looked like she'd be married, and then, oh, that didn't, nope. And then some more of her friends are married. And you know what? Of all her friends, she's the last one. She's the very last one. And not too long ago, she was wondering if she would, you know what I'm going to say, if she would ever get married. Well, she's getting married. By the way, weddings have changed since we got married. They, had, they do it different now. And I, they, have, they say, well, this is traditional. I go, it wasn't traditional 30. They didn't do that 33 years ago. I've been thinking about it. And I really have because I've been kind of, this has been an education. Well, this is a tradition. I thought, well, that's, that's a new tradition. And then I started thinking, somebody started that. Who, was the, who, was, who started that tradition? And then I got thinking, you know what? I'm going to start a tradition. So we got 225 people coming, and I'm charging them 75 bucks a head at the door. <laughs> you take that card and you say, okay, you're in. I think that is a biblical. Somehow I'll twist the word of God to make that work. Okay. What's that? The Bible study's 500, and you get to come anytime you want. Yeah, but she's only getting married once. Or they're, okay. Let's go back. Are you guys still with me? You go 10 more minutes? Okay. You, what do you mean so far, Al? You're still kind of a wise guy, aren't you, Al? I thought God had healed you of that. I like you. All right, here we go. Watch this now. So this guy is going to take a short road trip for a few months, and they're going to go over there, and, you know, okay, you got that, right? Winds up being 10 years. This guy thinks he's smooth. 
The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. It's going a little longer than they anticipated. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. This guy who had all his plans, all his, you know, counsel, all this, this is how it's going to work out. Well, I, I don't think that was on his plan. I don't think that was in his seven-year plan. I'm not sure it was in his 90-day objectives. Okay. So what happens? Uh, he dies, and she was left with her two sons. Probably not what she planned. Verse 4. They took for themselves, the two boys, Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. So this guy who had everything, this guy who had the family, this guy who's real sharp and is going to beat the system and heads to Moab, regardless of what's out there, he's just going to Moab because he's king, God's not king. He had all his plans, he had all his goals, he had it all worked out, he had thought it through, he had it all schemed, and he gets out there, and so suddenly what happens is, he didn't plan on three obituaries, including his own, but that's what happened, and he leaves his wife and two daughter-in-laws, and they're absolutely helpless. Uh, you know what's interesting about all this? This whole time, you got a guy named Boaz, who's back in uh, Bethlehem, being faithful, and here's what's wild. In the providence of Almighty God, even I'm sure at times when Boaz was discouraged about his life and where his life might be going, in the providence of God, God is using the foolishness of Elimelech to set up blessing upon Boaz, bring him a wife who comes from a foreign land but who has come to embrace Yahweh, They'll be married. They'll have children. Their children will have children. And those children will have children, one of whom will be David. And if you look at the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew, you know who's in there? Boaz. Hmm. Hey, guys, there's a plan. There's a plan. Even when it looks like it's out of control, it's under control. And he's just working. He's just working the plan. So what do you do? You just get up every day and you show up. And you just stay real close. And you say, Jesus, I don't know what the heck I'm doing. But I know I need you. I need you to navigate me today. Just steer me through. I got that meeting at 3 o'clock. I don't know what to say to those guys. I don't have a clue. I'm not sure what I'm going to say. Well, at 3 o'clock, you'll know what to say. But it's not 3 o'clock yet, is it? He'll just navigate you. Uh, let me just sum up Elimelech. A short-term plan designed to eliminate adversity, as we've already said, winds up in three obituaries. Let me give you seven observations about hard times. Let me give you seven observations about what you, you should do in famine. Not prosperity, not when times are good, when things are bad. 
Seven observations, because we are told we're to consider the work of God. Here's number one. In hard times, stay and learn the lessons. Don't bolt. Don't run. Stay and learn the lessons that God has. If you're in a time of adversity, if you're in a time of hardship, you know what you do? You get on your knees and you say, God in heaven, my Father, Lord Jesus, I need you to show me what's going on. I don't have a clue. Am I, am I, am I off base? Is something out of whack? I don't know. Would you show me? If you show me, I'll obey you. You pour out your heart to him. You're not playing church. It, this is life. This is from your gut. I want to learn every lesson you have for me in this chapter. I want to get it. I want to get it the first time. I don't want to flunk this class. I don't want to go to summer school. Make it so clear, I can't miss it. And if you ask him to make it clear, he'll make it clear. Won't he? Yes, he will. So don't bolt. Stay and learn the lesson. Number two. In hard times, keep a godly support system. You know what this guy did? By leaving Bethlehem, leaves family, leaves spiritual oversight. You know what we'd say today? He left family, left the church, left the Bible study. He left, he left the godly support system. And what did he do? He, went, he couldn't have gone to a worse place. He cut off everything that was right and good and holy, but he wasn't interested in it in the first place. Here's number three. In hard times, seek the mind of Christ instead of pipe dreams. Well, how do I, how do, I do that? You know, we all get, well, wouldn't it be neat if, what you, uh, uh, you know. Hey, man, we got to grow up. This is life, this is reality. We, we, got, we got too many guys um, that aren't being serious about life. This is serious stuff. Uh, you need the mind of Christ in a hard time. You need to consider the work of God. Lord, what are you trying to say to me? So what does that mean? I'd say three things. You're in the Word of God consistently. You listen to God more than you listen to the culture. You, you spend more time in the Word of God than you watch television. This nonsense. This... It's a world system. Be careful of what you put in your mind. Secondly, you pray. You seek God. You call out to Him. You can, you can pray in your car. You get up, you get up in the, if you need to get up in the middle of the night, just go in the living room and pray. Just talk to Him. You don't, have to be, you don't pray eight hours a day, but just pour out your heart to Him. Let Him know what's going on. I'm desperate. I need you. I don't know what's going on here. And you know what he'll do? He'll show you. He will show you. But he wants to see your heart. Here's number three. Seek godly counsel. And in abundance of counselors, there's victory, Proverbs says. So you're trying to figure out what God's doing? Go talk to some guys. You respect their walk with Christ. You respect their lives, their knowledge. Go talk to them and say, hey, let me run something by you. And then you run up by them and say, what do you think? I got two or three people in my life when I've got something major going, I run up by them. And you know what's interesting? I just thought of this today. When I've run stuff by them, I've never gotten a split decision. Ever. 
Two, three, they always, they always give me the same thing. It, it, sometimes they all give me no, sometimes they all give me yes. I've never had a split decision. Ever. In an abundance of counselors, there's victory. Uh, is this number four? Well, listen. Every man does what's right in his own eyes. I, what I have is that I gave you three, and now I'm going to give you the fourth one. Okay? In hard times, don't look to the enemy camp to find relief. Don't hang out with the wrong people. Don't hang out with the old crowd that, 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 who don't know Christ, whose eyes haven't been opened. Don't go back there. Bad company corrupts good morals, 1 Corinthians 15.33 says. Don't let them be your advisory board. Here's the next one, whatever number it is. In hard times, in famine, be content with daily bread. Yeah, but I used to have all this investment portfolio. I used to have all this. Okay, so you don't. So what do you have now? Well, it's famine. It's hard times, all right? You got daily bread? Be thankful. Matthew 6, 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Don't run off of this. Don't run off of this deal. Just, just show up, be faithful, and say, Lord, I need you today, and I need you to supply me. And you know what he'll do? He'll supply you. Be one of the greatest lessons of your life, one of the greatest times of your life. Will it always be that way? No, but for a season, you'll see the faithfulness of God in a way that you've never seen it before. So if your income isn't where it is, you know why it isn't where it was? It's because he wants you there. And he's going to grow you, and he's going to teach you. And you're going to learn to trust, and you're going to be scared. Good. He's your provider. He's your provider. Uh, here's the last one. In hard times, keep a teachable spirit and be quick to obey. If you're not teachable, you won't learn the lessons. And here's the deal. When he makes it clear what he wants you to do, do it. Do it. Hey, guys, we're not screwing around. This is life and death stuff. And you know what? He's for us. He's on our team. That's why all this stuff is going on. Let's pray. You want us to grow, you want us to build muscle, our Father, and that's why we're going through some hard times. Can't grow without the hard times. If everything's good, if everything's easy, if everything's prosperous, we don't grow. It's out there when we're running wind sprints twice a day in the 108 degree temperature. That's when you grow, that's when you build muscle, that's when you get conditioned. And sometimes, Lord, you're just out there on the field with us and you're just run, making us run laps because you want to create endurance so that we'll finish strong. Uh, this week, bring these words of your Bible to our memory and encourage us when we get discouraged. Let us know you're with us. You've got a providential plan. Your hand's on us and you're going to use us. We just need to be quick to obey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.